Number 275 has been announced, and as excited as we are to mark that and to continue to sing these wonderful hymns as we have this morning, it is indeed a tremendous blessing of talent that God has given us to be able to lift our voices and express the heartfelt feelings of our mind to worship and express those thoughts unto God. As Brother Jonathan mentioned, and as you've noticed in the bulletin, the title of the lesson today is The Parable of the Soils. And I would invite you to look with me at Luke, the 8th chapter, for the next few moments as we reflect upon that parable and give thoughts by way of application to your life and to mine. As we have often done throughout this particular series, we do wish to begin by way of a brief introduction and understanding of that which comes before us in light of the context of the passage and then to strive to delve deeply within it and to use those understandings for yourself and for mine. We here at the Pippin Congregation have set before ourselves, as we know, to read through the Holy Word of God this year, and we've now advanced to some 23.8%, some 283 total chapters as of the end of the day yesterday. As we continue that reading, we now find ourselves about the end of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, continuing in that reading of the Gospel according to Luke. For this morning, this parable of the soils. You'll notice just a few very brief comments to direct our thinking to some interesting features. The meaning of the idea of a parable, the thought setting behind that construct is this. It, it literally means to place one thing beside another for the purpose of instruction, for the purpose of illumination, or to highlight a contrast. And so often, that idea of a parable is a very helpful one. The Lord takes, or some other biblical person takes, a well-known activity, maybe a well-known consideration, likens it by way of a parable to something that has a deeper, richer, eternally spiritual thrust, and from that we are to deduce the comparisons and to appreciate the meaning for you and for me. It is in that regard that you'll notice that it has often been stated that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that does a fair amount of justice to the consideration, doesn't it? Surely we recognize that there are some parables in the context of the Old Testament. Balaam spoke one we may well remember having just read that a few days ago. But surely we realize that the golden era of parables came with the coming of the Son of God. Well, over 30 times He chose to instruct His audience in that which was by way of parable. And some of them are so well known. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And the parable, let's say, of that lost coin. The parable of the lost sheep. Those found in Luke chapters 10 and 15 respectively. But today we come before the setting of this Luke chapter 8. The parable of the soils. As you look at perhaps one final thing. This parable of the soils goes perhaps by another name that you and I may often have heard. Sometimes we hear it, hear it called the parable of the sower. In fact, your Bible may list that by way of a heading for a particular section in the Word of God. It does seem that a far more appropriate title would be the parable of the soils for reasons that you and I will see in just a moment. As often, let's consider first what it was the Lord said, and then after that to focus the spotlight upon thoughts, intents that should be so helpful to you and to me. Verse number 4 begins by saying, And when much people were gathered together, 
and were come to him out of every city, he spake by a parable. The Lord's popularity had risen to the point where individuals were arriving from a number of his special locations and regions and districts. You'll notice it was on this occasion that the master teacher himself perceived that by way of this well-known parable, they would be instructed the best way. A sower, verse 5, went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air, air devoured it. This individual, a sower as he is called, went forth to sow some seed. This season of the year, that seems appropriately special for us today. And as he went to sow, some of the seeds fell in this region known as the wayside. As they did, you'll notice it says they were trodden down. And furthermore, the fowls of the air devoured them. It may well be that a picture could be somewhat helpful. I have placed all four of them here. I would ask you to look at the top left one first. We have a wayside. It is a particular region, as the word would indicate, that in Matthew's account is one where there is much trotting going on. It's a pathway, if you please. Here you see a particular region that looks like a relatively little traveled roadway. But nonetheless, it's packed. Nonetheless, that soil is not conducive to much growth at all. Some of the seeds might have fallen on a place that you and I can imagine looking like that. Jesus is quick to inform us. The fowls of the air devoured it. That seed didn't even bring forth. It did not even produce the element because the birds consumed it before that took place. The wayside. Proceeding then to the next description, Jesus in the next verse, verse 6 says, that some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Please notice the bottom left picture with me if you would. Here is a placement, and again, you and I can imagine it well. Some of the seeds, as it was scattered by the sower, fell into a place that was encumbered with much rock. There was some soil, some particular fine ground minerals that would permit an immediate style of growth. But nonetheless, it is well known, characterized as a rocky kind of soil. Jesus is quick to say, as soon as it was sprung up. A plant did come forth. There was sufficient nutrients and minerals, if you please, to bring forth that. But it's quick to say that it withered away. Sufficiency of moisture was not there. Sufficiency of earth, if you please, was lacking. And so it was, that he says, because it lacked moisture, it withered away. Maybe you and I have observed flowers or other plants that were put in a placement where... Ultimately, though it begun with such promise, under the heat of the summer sun, it withered because only then was it recognized there wasn't depth of root because, again, there was too much rock available. Jesus wasn't near finished. In the third place, he says in verse 7, Some fell among thorns, and the thorns that sprang up with it and choked it. Please look at the top right picture if you would. Here is a place of ground, a place of soil, and some of those seeds have fallen in a place that was encumbered thickly with these which were thorns. These plants that were undesirable, these plants that, by the way, can take many and much of the nutrients of the soil, 
some of the seeds fell there. We notice quickly that they did, again, spring up somewhat, but he says the thorns grew with them. That reminds us a bit about other presentations of the Word of God, much like the wheat and the tares found in Matthew 13. Both grew up together, and as they matured and came to recognize their quality, we notice here the thorns choked them. It's not that the plants choked out the thorns, it's the other way around. These thorns were the ones that had sufficient capability in light of the poorness of the area. They overwhelmed the other, and you'll notice they were choked out. You'll notice that there's one final one, verse 8. And other fell on good ground, and sprang up and bare fruit an hundredfold. In addition to these other kinds of soil, those that we've noted heretofore, this wayside, this stony allotment, this thorny ground. We notice now that he says, here's some good ground. Some of these seeds fell there, and notice they sprang up as well. But unlike the previous ones that withered due to lack of moisture or were choked out due to the thorns, it says these bear fruit. Finally, something productive and worthwhile. And not only some fruit, he says, and hundredfold. There was a great harvest. There was much that came forth from it. You'll notice the bottom right is the picture indicative of this good ground. Notice how rich the soil looks. Notice how it almost appears easily could a plant come forth out of that. The nutrients are there. The moisture is there. The proper considerations relative to the soil are all present. At this point, you'll notice... These four soils have been presented. It is with those in mind that one final thought in verse 8. Jesus then says, when he had said these things, he cried. The Lord cried. And that word indicates that with a great deal of exclamation, with a great deal of power in his voice, he said, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. I suppose that those who were gathered and heard this easily understood the nature of this kind of matter. Sowing seeds, what might befall it? But you'll notice by the fact that the Lord cried, or with emphasis He asserted, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. I'm sure that there were many in the audience prompted about the deeper truths, about the deeper and more profound meanings. In fact, I would ask you to notice quickly in the very next verse, verse 9 past the one that was read earlier, it says, his disciples asked him, saying, what might this parable be? Those disciples, some of them were prompted. They were curious. What was the thrust and the emphasis of that parable spoken by the Master? If we revisit that previous page for just a moment, you'll notice that the very last thought on that particular slide is this one. When the disciples asked Jesus of the meaning, when they inquired of the nature of the interpretation, this is one of those few occurrences and occasions in which the Son of God Himself, by inspiration, provides us with the absolute meaning to the parable. Many of the others, by context, we can ascertain much. But of this one, there can be no doubt. Jesus told us what it meant. It is with that in mind that while you have your Bible open to that page, we're going to continue in the verse following and let Jesus explain all of these things to us. Beginning there in verse number 11, He says, 
Now the parable is this. The seed is the Word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the Word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they, which when they hear receive the Word with joy, and these have no root, for which for a while believe and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which, in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Back to that same picture that we had noted earlier, and as we proceed through the lesson, the direct question that the Master is surely asking of each and every one of us is this. The Lord wasn't giving us a dissertation on agricultural seed sowing. Although that's interesting and useful, the primary thrust is not those matters, but rather, as we've just seen, the condition of the heart. Which kind of heart do you have this morning, and what about me? Is it characterized by the top left, the bottom left, the top right, or the bottom right? To put that in different language, is your heart in the condition thereof and the responsiveness to the God of heaven, would it be better characterized as wayside? Would it be better characterized as encumbered with lacking moisture like stony ground? Would it be better characterized by that which is infested with thorns? Or would it perhaps be better described by that ground that's fertile, that ground that is so rich and productive? That question we'll ask again as the lesson proceeds. But for now, let's proceed on our journey and do so by letting the Lord Himself identify some of these issues of the wayside. We've just read this explanation, and I've tried to highlight the major features before us here. You might notice at this point again that comment that I had made earlier. Isn't it amazing that the sower, once he sows the seed, he leaves the scene. It's almost as if the play takes before us and we see someone sowing seed, but then he exits right. What we see left behind are the four soils, and the major lesson is in them. The parable of the soils, perhaps a better description than parable of the sower. We might well begin by noting that the seed that was sown in verse 11, we're told, is the Word of God. Look with me at the thoroughness and directness of the following lessons. First, these notes, and please consider them as we look at them one by one. That seed is the Word of God. Isn't it lovely and ever so pressing and imperative to appreciate the fact that you and I come face to face with the seed of the kingdom is the Word of God. Luke 8, verse 11, that marvelous and wonderful kingdom of God and the very seed that results in it describes it and sets forth all the details of it is none other than the Word of God. Isn't it also interesting that in this location we find that the same seed fell in different places? The sower didn't sow different seeds in the thorny or stony or wayside or good ground. It was the same seed. You and I have that precious seed, and perhaps it's resting on your lap. The seed of the kingdom is the Word of God. When this seed is planted, 
and when it's planted in the right kind of soil, it shall, by the promise and reward of God, bring forth in abundance a hundredfold. It shall bring forth with tremendous consideration. You may notice in light of that that this next comment comes before us. The oneness of this seed is a singular matter in the Word of God, isn't it? Ye shall know the truth, the Lord said, and the truth shall make you free. He did preface the word truth with the word thee. It's the truth. It's not one truth among many. It is that truth in which Jesus Himself identified it. It can be known. May you and I never fall prey to that supposed trick of the devil that the truth is a relative thing and it is not possible to know it. That is a lie. You'll notice that when Paul addressed those Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Here were men who were shepherds of the flock. And it was to them that Paul said, Brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. Paul's final words to those men, his final disclosure of matters weighing on his heart was this, Men... I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. That word of God is still that which Paul told Timothy to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Those words of 2 Timothy 4 verses 2 through 4 help us again see that this seed goes forth. Maybe one final thought. What a blessing it is to listen then to Jesus, interpret this for us, and you and I to be blessed to this point with the capability of reading and understanding it. On to the wayside we go. We notice that just as that picture indicated, it was trodden down that seed that fell here. And we notice that the fowls of the air came and devoured it. They found a nice hearty snack or meal but it did not germinate and bring forth as it was intended. Look at some of these comments. Jesus said this is representative of those who hear that gospel, who hear the truth, but who He quickly said, you'll notice in the previous verse, the devil comes, snatches it away, takes it away, and He says there in verse number 12, lest they should believe and be saved. Doesn't that highlight, among other things, the watchful eye of the devil? When someone is exposed to the truth, and perhaps with a heart that could respond in a proper way, notice the devil has an all-seeing eye. He knows, too, what might will happen. And we're told in this verse, then comes the devil and he takes away the Word. Now, not that he destroys the power of the Word, but... That person's responsiveness, that person's intent is changed into something else. What is it that could be the resulting circumstance surrounding this? How could the devil take the word away out of a person's mind that way? Maybe you have been in a position or maybe you've known someone who were present at the services when the singing took place, the prayers were offered, when the lesson was brought. You could see it in the eyes and in the face of that person. He or she knew well what needed to be done, and their knuckles turned white as they gripped that pew. They won't come forward at that invitation. 
something's holding them back. It's the devil, of course. He offers any number of excuses. There's a better day than this one. Won't you wait until someone else is here to see it with you? Shouldn't they see it? Shouldn't they celebrate with you? Or maybe it's an element of discouragement. Other people are here, and I know the kind of lives they live, and I don't want to be associated with someone behaving like that. One excuse after another. But you might also notice that in Luke 14, verses 15 and following, the Lord spoke about those that offer excuses, and notice He didn't justify them. In fact, He painted a picture that they were on the short end of receiving the powerful reward intended. Excuses will not save. But you'll notice that another matter that so often offers a hindrance, a problem, a tremendous obstacle to overcome is that of false teaching that has soaked into the mind. And so there's prejudice against the Word. They perhaps hear what's said, but I remember someone else saying it didn't mean that. A false teacher has asserted something else, and so I'm not sure. I think I'll wait. Fifty years later, the waiting is over and you die lost. Isn't that what sometimes befalls individuals? What happens? When you and I appreciate the existence of that word and the invitation there, we ought to heed to it at once, for the devil can find ways over time to make you never that close again. This wayside soil, you see, is that which again the birds ate it up. But there was another kind of soil as well, that stony ground, the rocky soil. I've listed that at the top of this slide before us. Some of that seed fell in this ground that was, again, very rocky. And you'll notice it sprung up with immediacy. It began to come forth. But isn't it interesting, it says very quickly that it withered. The very wording was this in verse number 6. As soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Would you please reflect with me like this? Jesus says this is like those who do hear it. And they not only hear it, it does begin to bring forth with them. They have a proper response. They begin, in fact, to produce and to proceed in those ways that the Word would indicate. But you'll notice He very quickly identifies that when trials arrive, and I'm now looking at verse 13, they on the rock are they which when they hear receive the word with joy. These are so happy. I'm released from my sins. I've been baptized into Christ. I'm a new creature. All is well. And verse 13 goes on to say, these have no root. The excitement that first is characteristic of them soon gives way to the reality of life and the trials that the devil is sure to bring and the trials that life itself seems to have about it. In the face of those trials, it says, in time of temptation, they fall away. That word temptation means trials. It means those things that test us. And those things are sure to come, aren't they? At this point, none of us can prophesy the future in that regard, so we don't know exactly what the trials might be. But we have lived long enough and have seen it experienced by others that we can guess what it could be. You get that sudden news. The plant is closing. They're moving elsewhere and you have no job. 
that has never been a worry because from the time I graduated high school, I've worked productively. I've been able to provide. And now what am I going to do? My health isn't perfect. I can't start all over. And suddenly, one is faced with trials that you've never thought about facing before. What? What are you going to do? Or you get that tragic news. The doctor has something to say. The test didn't turn out good, so you get a phone call, and that's not usual. Could you please come back at your earliest convenience? And upon the arrival, you find the news is worse than you feared. What am I going to do? How am I going to take care of my wife and my children? Suddenly, these burdens and trials of life could easily overwhelm one's faith, and one now begins to question God. How could you let this happen? I've served you in the church. I've tried my best. And now suddenly, you're going to let this happen to me? If one's not careful, that kind of trial can shake one's faith. And in fact, you'll notice they fall away. And suddenly those individuals are so distraught with the church, so distraught with Jesus and the Bible that their attendance isn't regular and soon it's not at all. These kind of things, fearful enough, could happen, couldn't they? You'll notice that in this instance, the roots just simply aren't deep enough. Among other things, doesn't that teach us we need deep roots spiritually? We need them. If our roots are shallow, the tree can easily blow over. It can easily be uprooted, but if those roots run deep, that tree can withstand so much, those plants can find moisture even in times of drought. How deep do your roots run? And what about me? Do they run as deeply as they should? Here are some verses to consider. In Colossians 2 verse 7, the inspired writer on that occasion said, Rooted and grounded in Him. There's that very word rooted. Are you rooted sufficiently and am I? Perhaps as you reflect on the next type of soil, the thorny ground. You notice here the express, the express statement of verse 7 was, Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And Jesus' explanation in verse 14, And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life. The thorny ground. Some of those seeds fell among this kind of soil. Around here, I think we're all rather well aware of that possibility as well. A lot of the ground in Jackson County, like it is here, is pretty productive for bringing forth cockleburrs. And yet, if you sow something among them, you will have very little, if any, kind of result out of the crop you want. Those cockleburrs seemingly can thrive even in dry weather. They'll soak up the nutrients and moisture of that soil. And what you end up getting is little if anything at all look at these thorny ground when the plant does spring up it says it's choked these thorns overwhelm it and in fact are completely that which consumes it verse number 14 says that that which chokes it is this the cares the riches and the pleasures of life it may well be that in this materialistic land in which we live, that could be one of the most effective techniques of the devil on the church. This person that has obeyed the gospel, this individual that has known what the truth is all about, 
And so he or she begins a walk in life, and suddenly the devil is able by success to bring so many things. You start working more hours a week because you want the extra pay so you can buy another car, build a bigger house, improve your house in appropriate fashion, and by itself there isn't anything wrong with those improvements. But when it comes to the point that it chokes out your spirituality and your faith is now just a burning ember of what it once was, then you have been choked by these cares of the world and by the deceitfulness that corresponds to pleasures and riches. And that's an ongoing battle for each of us, isn't it? You'll notice that so many things in the sacred text relate to that very matter. In 2 Timothy, we find that Paul, in fact, stating to Timothy, reminded him of these matters. You'll notice in verse number 10 of that closing chapter, what was it that happened to Demas? You may remember that here was a gentleman who had been an associate of Paul, and yet Paul says, he's forsaken me now. He's loved this present world. That's a temptation that the devil seems to use masterfully. It is with those things in mind that that slide closes with this final reminder. We are told to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and that will help us stay at bay from the thorns. Of course, that which awaits is the good ground. We knew that was coming. Standing apart from these other three, we have this precious good ground. It seems useful to at least keep this in mind as well that it's almost as if it's tempting to look upon this as a progression from the wayside to the stony to the thorny and then finally to the good ground. But the words of the Master seem not to emphasize any progression. Only the good ground was fit. The others were not good in His sight and the others spiritually are bereft of the blessings that could well be experienced. So whether one's wayside, stony, or thorny, changes need to be made at once. What about this good ground? The plant sprang up. You notice, unlike the stony, this one didn't wither. Even in times of trial, it had sufficient moisture to withstand all that was thrown at it. Does that characterize your faith and mine? You'll notice furthermore that statement is made. Jesus Himself identified this soil as having a good and honest heart. Stubbornness with respect to the Word is eternally damning, isn't it? To face it and then say, well, I don't believe it means that. That's eternally condemning. But when one in honesty says, I see what the Lord said, I'll do it. That kind of obedience is special indeed, isn't it? And thankfully, many of us have known and experienced that. Is your heart one that's good and honest and fertile in this good ground of which we've spoken? You'll notice that those who hear and respond like this, how sweet and special in the sight of God, they bring forth an hundredfold. They are constantly touched by the power of the Word. Didn't Paul say in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the gospel revealed, is the truth revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. As we close this lesson with those conclusion thoughts on that slide before you, the immediate question is, which kind of soil are you? And which am I? No one else can answer for you, and no one can answer for me. 
But as you stand before the God of heaven at this point, knowing that He knows what's in your heart and He knows what kind of soil you are, if you need to respond today to the gospel invitation, if you find yourself either as thorny, stony, or wayside, you need to make a response positively at once. If you are the good ground, may you continue that way until death. And if you do, the crown of life will be yours, Revelation 2.10. The plan of salvation demands that if you have never rendered initial obedience, you need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins and confess His name as the only begotten Son of God. Be baptized for the remission of sins and walk faithfully until death. If you have taken care of the first, but you have not walked faithfully, you may be like these soils that began to spring up, but now with temptations and trials coming, or with thorns all about you, you're beginning to give way. You, you can feel yourself weakening. Make a U-turn at once. Make things right and beseech the God of heaven for strength and use His Word day by day. If right now your heart is being beckoned to respond, don't delay, but why not come while together we stand and while we sing?